0: Welcome everybody to another edition of This Week in Doom. Joining me, bringing the doom as always, and hopefully uh, a few rays of sunshine, the green chicken himself, Doomberg. Hi matey, how are you? Grant
1: Williams, Happy New Year. Um, Hope you had a wonderful holiday, it's been too long.
0: Yeah, I I forget what the, I'm pretty sure Larry David has a cut off for how long you can say Happy New Year for. I'm not sure what the date is, whether it's like, where are we now, The 14th of Jan?
1: I kind of feel like it's the first time you see somebody in the new year, but, you know, I, I'll, yeah, but go must be, if you don't see him till
0: February, I mean, I, I don't know. There's a cutoff somewhere and I'm pretty sure Larry David has it nailed, nailed down.
1: Well, let's put it this way. Our our Christmas decorations come down on January 2nd.
0: Oh uh, Yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs>
1: <So we're>... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There you go. So where do you find yourself these days, Grant? Uh, I find myself in,
0: right? back in uh, South Carolina. So I'm very happy to be back here after whizzing around a bit already at the start of the year. I've made a few trips already, but I'm back in South Carolina and delighted to be here. How's the coop? Cold?
1: Well, the coop is cold, but this might be the first this week in doom where we are both in the same time zone.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's it's, it's it's remarkable, right? Absolutely remarkable. <laughs> and, and I'm glad we're going to make the best use of it. Well, listen, um, a couple of things that have sparked this conversation in there, are a couple of things that you've written recently that I, that I want to talk to you about. One, which is uh, a little bit more technical, which we'll come to in a minute. But the first one is something you wrote recently about the the Blackstone B read. And this is something that we, there's been an awful lot of commentary and opinion being uh, blasted around on because it's one of those things I think feels important to everybody, but not many people are that sure why. But I thought you did a really good job of, of laying out why it was important and why people should be paying attention to it. So, so should we kick off with that?
1: Sure, happy to. And in fact, you know, you, as you alluded to, lots of people are thinking and writing about it. And we, uh, we scooped Ben Hunt by about two hours with the publication yeah, right. of our piece. And so I knew we were onto a hot topic if uh, we published it on the same day that ben, yeah. ben Ben put out his really brilliant piece as well. I think at its core, the b phenomenon and the situation um, that it represents harkens to um, a a greater sort of issue in the private markets. And as you know, we do a lot of investing in the private markets and some work in the venture capital space. And we've been seeing this phenomenon over the the sort of epic bull market that came after the lockdowns from COVID and the the fiscal and monetary responses um, that that arose from those those actions if you thought like the, the public stock markets were in a bit of a room, <laughs> you can't imagine what's been going on in the private um, markets. And the piece we wrote a couple of, couple of days ago is called On Your Mark, which is sort of a clever title because ultimately, you know, um, Blackstone, like many private investors, um, and most importantly, people who invest other people's money in the private sector get to basically choose their own marks. And that sets up a sort of inherent and natural potential conflict of interest, at least. Um, Blackstone gets to mark its own sort of um, real estate investments and then charges fees against that on a quarterly basis. And so there's an inherent conflict of interest, and they'll all say that their their marks are good. But the funny thing about B REIT is, you know, the real estate market has really collapsed in 2022 because of Fed policy, hiking interest rates, uh, making it more difficult for people to get the leverage they need to buy property, which then, of course, reduces the number of buyers in the market, which then reduces the price. And if you look at, you know, in the piece we, we charted the B-REIT self-reported NAV against the Bloomberg Apartment Index and the Bloomberg uh, Warehouse Last Industrial yeah. Index, and yeah. both of those are down markably for the year, and yet the B-REIT um, self-mark is flat. And um, it's just a fascinating thing. It's it's. I think that the next sort of wave of regulatory action is going to come down in the private markets, I think. Um, as big uh, money managers and institutions have sort of had been forced to chase yield and go out on the risk curve. A lot of them went into the private sector, pensions, insurance companies, university endowments in this case with the University of California, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But um, there's a lot less oversight in the manner in which things are valued in the private sector. And then, you know, money managers can charge fees against that. And, and so that, that was the real Trust of the piece, um, we we I happen to think that um, BRIE will be just fine, and you know things are in cycles, and and um, and this injection of capital from the University of California's endowment um, will probably get them over the line. But it's still very fascinating that that one of the bluest of, of blue chip companies, um, Blackstone, would be in a position to where they would effectively need to go out and get distressed financing to stop what uh, what our. Uh, what a friend of mine uh, characterized via Twitter DM uh, the Donut Shorts account, which is a brilliant account on Twitter, characterized it as a trot on the bank. Yes, I saw that. <laughs> it wasn't, wasn't that. quite a run on the bank, but it sure yes. was a trot. They were facing redemptions, and they got an injection of cash. Um, and, and kudos
0: to them for getting it. Yeah, no, I saw I saw that trot at the bank. I thought that was perfect. But but listen, you've talked about distress financing, but j- just run people through for those who've just kind of seen the um, Blackstone and seen the the stuff about Beery in the headlines and haven't really understood. Just run people through that deal, because it was a really, really interesting deal that they did to get this new round of funding in.
1: Yeah, so it was actually two deals. It was an investment by the University of California endowment to the tune of $4 billion in REIT, common equity, um, shares in the trust. Um, but then in a side deal, they struck, uh, they, they put those shares and um, Blackstone put a billion dollars of their own shares into what amounts to a special purpose vehicle, where the University of California Um, was uh, guaranteed, not guaranteed is too strong a word. Um, If the University of California does not get a promised guarantee of, I think it's 11 and a quarter percent per year, um, that billion dollars is effectively collateral that backstops that preferred yield for the University of California. And then beyond that, um, the fees that Blackstone will be charging the, the $4 billion that the University of California has put in could also be clawed back to, um, to backstop that preferred yield that, um, Blackstone granted to them. Now, um, in, in a sense, the old adage is you should raise money when you can and, and credit to to Blackstone. Um, they, they were facing, you know, uh, they literally gated redemptions on the fund in the the fourth quarter, which is pretty remarkable. And so they went out and got money. And, and ultimately, as you know, you have a duration mismatch. Uh, and when you have illiquid assets that are still probably performing well in your mind, um, liquidity is a function of confidence. And the big test is whether this injection of $4 billion from a, a pretty well-respected large investor like the University of California's endowment um, will stem the redemptions, or at least buy them enough time so that they don't have to fire sale these properties, And which of course would have sort of a potential spiraling effect of revealing what the true NAVs are. <laughs> you know, um, what you think it's worth and what somebody will pay for it on short notice can be vastly different things. As this, this is a story in finance that's as old as time, right? This is this is how these things always go, and the big mistake we believe um, is that they marketed this thing very aggressively to the retail uh, investor uh, through you know RIAs and and so on, and and as we mentioned in the piece, you know you could have a net worth as little as seventy thousand dollars as long as you could prove a seventy thousand dollar a year income and you are you know qualified to participate in BReit, and this was really you know they brag about two hundred thousand investors but if, if the you know if the fund is worth 70 billion i think it is then you're talking about $300,000 average investment size and these guys i think are used to serving um, long-time horizon pension allocators who are willing to ride out cycles and don't you know that they're they're investing for when the retirees will need their funds in 10, 20 and 30 years and if you market it to a retail crowd like this 200, stuffing 200,000 of them into this B REIT um, and you allow them a monthly redemption feature. Um, when things start to go south, um, you should you should know that a key feature of the product is who the other investors are on the cap table. As a friend of mine said via text after the piece came out, you know if you're invested alongside um, Archikos and Bill Wang, you know that that's a different deal than if you're invested alongside Calpers. And and so um, this was marketed broadly to the public, 200,000 investors, as, as I said earlier, and uh, um, and a lot of them are looking at. Um, looking at what's going on in the real estate world and deciding maybe they want their funds back. And ironically, if, and this is a big if, and nobody's accusing Blackstone of of elevated marks, but one of the things we said in the piece is the market could just not believe what their marks are. And if you're effectively saying my $5 bill is worth 10 and you're willing to exchange uh, at that price, well, all the holders of those $5 bills are going to hit that bid. And, And that's effectively what we're seeing. And in fact, um, it could be a bit of an arbitrage if you could um, go and short a, a largely equivalent fund in the, in the public markets, and then redeem your BRE. You could close that arm, um, and and we suspect many people are doing that. And so it's a fascinating story. It calls into question the sanctity of the public markets. What is something worth? Um, the duration mismatch problem that that has plagued so many uh, similar funds over time. Um, you know the, the need to get distressed funding, and again, full credit to the Blackstone. They they took their medicine. Uh, we'll see whether it works. I, we suspect it will, um, but they certainly took their medicine.
0: But this, you know, it, it brings up so many other questions to me. Um, the first is this idea that you can take a liquid assets and create liquid products out of them, which you know we've seen with uh, HYG, right, the high yield junk bond uh, ETF. Um, and this, is, this has been a trend that's, that was great when markets were were going up every day. It was very easy to take these illiquid products, create a liquid substitute for them, and then throw it out to the retail walls and let them have at it. Um, this is the first sign I've seen of some kind of stress in, in one of those types of products, i.e. something that has been designed to solve illiquidity issues. Um, and, you know, look, there's nothing... More illiquid, one might argue, than property. You know, it's such a difficult thing to shift, and and when it turns, it turns hard. And you know, you, property markets go no bid in a hurry, uh, and things get really, really sticky. So to, to see this play out, to see the terms that Blackstone gave UC, I thought spoke volumes about. Let's be charitable. The potential problem they saw that could arise if they didn't get this funding in. You know, this as you say, raise money when you can. Eleven a quarter percent is an extremely aggressive uh, coupon to offer. In, in effect, let's call it a coupon. In effect, and and that to me just screams illiquidity rather than anything else. It's like what we're worried about most here is if we get into a liquidity crunch, if we gate the fund as we had to because they had more than the five percent monthly withdrawal attempts from people. And this is the danger, right? This is the danger that retail crowds pose to you. If you if you raise your money from retail investors. As you say, they're skittish. They want to get out, quite rightly Sue, so, because these things probably represent a much bigger allocation of their own wealth than than they do for institutional investors. So this liquidity problem, whether it works for Blackstone or not, to me, is just the tip of the iceberg because there are so many other products out there that potentially face a very, very similar Waterloo. Yeah,
1: just a quick correction. It's 2% per month and 5% per quarter. I, I beg your pardon. So, yes, so, right, yeah, yeah, you're yeah, right. The quarter. Just so that, yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, everybody is aware. But I would say a couple of things. First, I want to talk about publicly traded asset accumulators because that's essentially what Blackstone is. And when you're publicly traded and your business is accumulating assets, it doesn't take long before you have to go down the pyramid and make it up in volume, right? And yeah. and there's a pressure to keep growing the underlying. And by the way, if you look at the fees charged, you know, uh, depending on the class share of, of the BREIT, the, the fees, there's a lot more fees to be had um, when, when sort of um, retail... Um, investors are in versus the negotiating power of a massive pension allocator that can give you billions and and make sure that your fees are a pittance. Um, but let's talk about the University of California because that's an interesting thing. So by my math, the University of California manages 150 billion, which by the way tells you something about what the true business model is of universities. Right. Um, but they're putting 2.6 percent of by my math. Uh, 2.6% of their entire portfolio into one investment. And one wonders the true depth and breadth of the entanglement that the University of California has with Blackstone. I suspect it's in the billions across a variety of other products. And, you know, if the trot on b Re turned into a run, which turned into a confidence scare on the entire Blackstone franchise, which seems unthinkable. Um, lots of things seemed unthinkable in 08, too, until they happened. Um, the University of California might in fact be billing itself out here in a way, which is an interesting angle. We didn't, we decided against putting that in the piece, but um, because it's just perhaps with a follow-up. but what's going on at the University of California where they feel that uh, 2.6% allocation to a single investment. And, you know, you're familiar with people who manage large endowments and funds. 2.6% is a heavily concentrated bet, even if it's backstopped essentially by Blackstone's, you know, uh, book of business because ultimately I, I can't imagine that Blackstone would allow B-REIT to, uh, to go under, you know, like, I mean, to talk extreme, to talk full doom, I put full doom on, um, yeah, right. but you, you could have imagined like the trot turning into a run, turning into a common, what other products can you redeem out of Blackstone? And then people start pulling their funds and, you know, then the stock starts to crater and it, it sort of becomes a, a snowball rolling down the hill. And, and the University of California's entire relationship with Blackstone is something that we're kind of, interested to dig into for potentially for a future piece but uh, there's a little more to the story than just savvy UC investor uh, gets distressed funding deal from Blackstone. And as we said in the piece by the way, the thing that's jarring about this is Blackstone's usually on the other end of these deals <laughs> and these are the types of deals that they do that they impose on on people that need the money and the, it's sort of Warren Buffett style with his preferred equity uh, during the, during the global financial crisis.
0: Well, I mean, two things occurred to me. One is that pension funds are, um, they're not outliers. Pension funds tend to behave and move in herds. You don't really find that many outliers in the way pension funds allocate their assets. So, you know, when I saw that, I I don't assume that UC are acting in a completely different way to every other pension fund. Um, You know, these guys all talk together they all go to the same forums the same conferences they they share ideas they share um you know strategies so I, I I'd be staggered if this was an, a massive outlier in terms of style
1: well um, also don't forget this is an endowment which has some pension funds within it but it's even uh, at the right. broader level and and the school that um that sort of broke path on this is Yale of course with and Harvard with their large endowments yeah. and they all went private and again when you're investing privately we do it we love it Um, You can get outsized returns. You can help the management team. You don't have to worry about daily mark-to-market. But you said something earlier that's really important. When you try to create liquidity for illiquid assets, it never works because nobody wants to give up the liquidity premium. In other words, the reason why real estate, if you have the patience and the time horizon and the bankroll to get through the cycles, the reason why it gives you excess return is because embedded in that return is a premium for the fact that these things aren't liquid. And so it's kind of like much of financialization. You're trying to have your cake and eat it too, which only works for so long. And that gets tested when times of crisis happen and people are very hungry. (laughs) People eat when they're hungry and you can't have your cake and expect people not to eat it um, when they get hungry.
0: Well, I think the other interesting thing is we've seen the first signs of stress in markets recently, and obviously not just traditional assets, but also digital assets. And it was funny to me that one of the first bodies to kind of half float to the surface in the FTX collapse was a big pension fund, the Ontario Teachers Pension Fund, which speaks to me. You mentioned how people have had to chase yield. To do that, they've had to take on investments that perhaps... They wouldn't have done in normal times and they've also had to it would appear based on what we know from ftx so far pass on a level of due diligence that one cannot help but associate with in pensions and endowments and i've and i've gone and spoken to both in my former life uh, in looking to raise money and I, I i know how difficult it's always been to go through the process of of satisfying the due diligence requirements of those types of institutions. So, you know, what do you make of the fact that these two things are happening at the same time? One, they're cutting deals that seem to have a reason other than pure commercialism to be done from one or both sides. And two, there are question marks over the due diligence process now of, of things like endowments and pension funds.
1: So this is an interesting thing. And uh, you know my my background and the work I've done in the VC sector and um, what it happened in 21 especially, and into 22, it was literally a full blown mania in the BC space. And when you're in a mania, the only thing that matters is deal flow and deal access. And um, if you look at the documents um, saying Bankman Fried effectively dictated his terms, and one of the terms was there shall be no due diligence. Yeah. You're either in or you're not. And, um, you know, this seems so bizarre to people. But when you're seeing, you know, Pension A get invested in a private company that does uh, a Series A that you're in, and then nine months later does a Series B at 13 times its prior valuation, um, and the next Series A comes along with a hot founder, you're looking to get 13 times return, and, and you don't really care about the due diligence. And, and this mania that blew up in the private markets was pretty profound, uh, it's under the radar because the average investor doesn't participate in private markets. It's not really the stuff of CNBC and the Wall Street Journal. But just to give you an example, um, Tiger Global, which is um, a fund that our mutual friend Mark Cahoots has been, been, uh, let's just say, uh, discussing cool. <laughs> on on Twitter for some time. In in the year twenty twenty one, I believe they did uh, a deal a day, right? Which is unfathomable. Like it. And, and you come to find out that they've outsourced their due diligence to Bain, of all places. And look, I know the McKinsey's and the Bain's and the, and the BCG's of the world. These are fresh out of college, ambitious people, very bright people with zero experience.
0: Well, and incentivized to do deals,
1: right? Exactly. I mean, and so, you know, a deal a day for a VC fund makes uh, Master Sun look look uh, careful and prudent. I mean, it's, yeah. you, could, you literally can't do, 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 So literally it's just deal flow and deal access. And if you get in on the seed round and it does a B and a C and maybe a secondary on the D and you get your, you know, three times what you put in out and you're still rolling another 10 X of what you put in, you know, you want to get in those deals. And it's like every other mania, Ontario teachers pension fund is no different than Grant Williams in that regard. Um, if, if you're seeing, a mania going on, you want to be part of it. Everybody. Yeah, right? same thing with the whole crypto space in general. Like, of course it was. Now, I, I say Grant Williams, you and I have been skeptical of such manias and, and are unlikely to get caught up in them. But to the average investor who hasn't lived through these cycles, I lived through 0809. my company nearly went bankrupt. Like, I know what it's like. I know where stocks can go. You came to market, you know, with the 87 crash, and this has shaped your experience. Um, once you've lived through one of those, you sort of, if you're smart, You have the battle scars, and and you avoid such things. I I, I've lost precisely zero money in crypto, in the past two years. Um, But in the VC space, boy, the mania was high, the the froth was amazing, and we're still not. I mean, a lot of these companies are still in denial. Like they they need to raise funds. You know, in our work, we're focusing on getting uh, good investments at companies that are in need of money, but are very close to cash flow break even. that that they could support themselves in a worst-case scenario. A lot of these unicorns that are basically just cash burners hoping to ultimately find a greater fool to sell into, they're all going to zero, like zero. And and the the private market has not yet taken its medicine, I believe.
0: Well, the interesting thing that I've noticed in the last few weeks, the conversations I've had, well, let's call it six or eight weeks, uh, the number of times someone has said to me these exact words, but now I'm getting paid 4.5% to wait. And I think people underestimate the difference that that makes, the fact that people can sit in two-year notes and get 4% plus. People tend to think about what that is below the inflation. So, well, 4% isn't covering your inflation nut, and that's just not the way people think about it. Uh, so there is an awful lot of, of money that has gone into safe places to ride out this storm, because I don't, I don't think anyone is worried about taking home a guaranteed 4.5% right now and avoiding a lot of this stuff. So if that's the case and we are at a point where there's a crunch to raise money, I think people are going to be shocked the kind of terms people are going to expect to bring that money out of treasuries, out of AAA rated and risk-free assets and put it into the kind of stuff that they've been giving ridiculously low uh, coupons for.
1: Well, let's get back to the University of California. Is that 11 and a quarter truly all that great if the NAV isn't what we think it is? And their BATNA, their best alternative to negotiate agreement, is to park it in a T-bill for two years. Don't forget they have to lock up their money for six years that, yeah, in that yeah. in that side pocket that deal, special yeah. purpose vehicle that they did. And and so is that really such a shrewd deal? Like how much does Blackstone need to be rounding up on their nav for the University of California to effectively already be underwater? Because don't forget the quote, billion dollar backstop is actually just shares in B read. Correct. And so it's, is it really a billion dollars? And, and so, you know, these things are correlated. The The level of the collateral and the probability of getting their return, you know, that these things are highly dependent on each other. And and so, if your alternative is 4.5%, no risk. Heck, I mean, mortgages are, what, 7%? So, you get a nice yeah. basket of those. Like, the, 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 was this truly the best deal that University of California had on offer? And this gets back to the other question is, what is the level of entanglement with Blackstone and the University of California? And, and were they... Was this truly a shrewd deal, or a deal that both sides had to make in a sort of uh, mutually assured destruction? If they didn't,
0: yeah, and, and if you if you go through those numbers in that way, it certainly suggests that there's not a completely off the wall assumption. Because, as you quite rightly say, eleven and a quarter percent at face value, but without uh, a true understanding of what the uh, underlying assets are worth. And I say that chart, anyone listening to this that hasn't seen that chart that you put up with the with the NIV versus the two indices underneath it, is really quite remarkable, frankly. I mean, it doesn't surprise me, but when you look at it, it's like, boy, there's, there's some trouble there. There is definitely some trouble in those in those marks, I would say, looking at... Well, it raises
1: an eyebrow. Let's put it that way. Yeah,
0: yeah. I think it's a charitable way to put it.
1: And then, look, we tried we tried to scale those axes so that they're both roughly 50% right. of the underlying value so that you could get a fair comparison. Like, you can play with axes and, and make charts look deceptive. That was not our... We did the opposite there. We made sure that you could see just how flat the NAV was versus what the, the public markets are doing. Now, we should say um, publicly traded REITs can deviate from their NAV substantially because they are ultimately an expression of the supply and demand for those shares with some correlation to what the market believes the underlying assets are worth. And so it's a bit unfair to directly compare private and and public markets without at least giving that caveat. Agreed. But it is an indication of what's going on, or at least what the market believes is going on in in the sector. And look, you could see for yourself, open the newspaper, like the real estate market is in big trouble in the U.S. And they say, Blackstone, in Blackstone's defense, they say, we are in the high end of the market. We've bought really great properties. They're performing well. Our income against these properties is thirteen percent. We're paying our dividend. Um, you know, these are in the sunbelt. This is warehouses and, and multifamily homes. Yep. This is where you want to be, yada, 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 yada. All true. Right. All true. But doesn't necessarily mean that it's differentiated against the market. Exactly. Because I don't know how you put several tens of billions of dollars to work without A affecting the price and B out out outperforming everybody else who's trying to do the same. Right. And and like, are they truly that much smarter and better at real estate at Blackstone than pick your favorite? Because there's a lot of public REITs out there of similar size. Uh, and, and it's not clear to me that Blackstone is just uniquely finding all the jewels. Like there's a lot of really talented people in real estate who know what they're doing.
0: Well, and this is, this is my observation of real estate as well. The people that I've seen who do this on a smaller scale do it remarkably well. As soon as you get to the scale of a Blackstone, it does give you the kind of bargaining power you need to put deals together. But on the other hand, it absolutely impairs your ability to do the best deals because the best deals aren't big enough for Blackstone anymore. So well, ironically, you're
1: right. what they claim it gives them is a lower cost of capital so they can do this at scale. But now you see what their true cost of capital is when they need it. Yeah. Which is yeah. They cut with the university of California. Oh, exactly so right. It's a fascinating story across many, many levels. And, and I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad that you chose this piece for us to talk about because it was a fun one to write and, uh, and it certainly provoked a lot of uh, interesting emails in response.
0: Well, the, the other piece we're going to talk about, I say, is a lot more technical, so I'm going to save that because I want to. I want to just talk to you about something that um, your piece put me in mind of, and I just um, I just finished watching the Madoff documentary on Netflix, which I I highly recommend to people. You know, it's, it's funny; it's we're about 14 years removed, almost 15 years removed from the Madoff scandal, and you know, I think anyone that was in markets at the time remembers what a seismic shock it was. But it's only now going back and watching this documentary and realising, um, which is a very comprehensive look, at it's four parts, it's you know, roughly four hours long. Um, and they do a really good job of bringing in people who were up to their necks in this whole process. So it's not just like you know a couple of guys talking about it who weren't really that close to the action. And you realise just how appalling a job the regulators did at the time, the SEC. They interview at length Harry Markopoulos, who was just an extraordinary figure in the whole case. And, you know, when Harry first wrote to the SEC uh, in 2000, saying this thing was a fraud, and he goes through his initial submission, which laid it on a silver platter for the SEC and basically said, I'm going to prove to you that this thing's a fraud, lays it out very clearly, uh, and they just never got back to him. Um, Literally no response whatsoever. And he warned them in 2000, 2005, 2007, and 2008, before it all collapsed, and they showed, you know, short clips of the congressional hearings on this thing. And, and they talked about how these things were the most contentious things since Watergate, with everybody ripping the SEC a new one. And as I watched that, uh, a couple of things occurred to me. You know, first, I, I remember just how galling this whole thing was when it went down. But it was 15 years ago now. But you realise now, looking around the world today, you realise that uh, you know now we've got Gary Gensler in charge of the SEC, and I'm I'm thinking about Tether, particularly came to mind, but also FTX and the and the lack of regulatory oversight that seems to be rampant in the crypto space, and I'm just stunned to see just how little seems to be done when you when you watch that Madoff documentary in context and you see the uh, the attitude of policymakers towards the regulators at the time, you can think to yourself, boy, they must have really shaken that agency up. And then you look around today and it feels like nothing's happened. And so to, to see a, a fraud that was $3 billion when Harry Markopoulos first brought it to the attention of the SEC finally go under at $64 billion, you you just have to wonder what the hell it takes before the regulators actually start regulating rather than cleaning up the site of the crash. And, and you know, when you wrote this piece and you talked about how we had 200,000 retail investors in this thing, it just brought that home to me. So I'm curious as to your thoughts. I don't know if you've seen that documentary or not, but I'm curious as to your thoughts of regulators and why they seem to be asleep at the wheel. whether it be the SEC or the NHTSB or uh, the NTSB, all of them seem to be. Completely derelict at the moment.
1: So. so it's funny because the piece we wrote before on your mark, which covered B was a piece called Unnatural Immunity, which goes into what we believe is going to be, once this fraud cycle does burst, a renewed emphasis on what we call sort of the personification of corporate crime. Now, in frauds, financial frauds like Ponzi schemes, it's very clear. Like SBF is a person, he was in charge, he made these decisions. Money was stolen from customers. Was commingled. Was invested. Um, in the Bernie Madoff case, I've not seen the documentary, but based on your recommendation, both now and, and in a previous discussion we had, it's certainly on my list of things to watch. In the Bernie Madoff situation, there's a person there, and you know, you say sixty billion, but in reality, the, the size of the fraud was the money that went in. And if you it was, look it at was the, twenty, it was nineteen yeah, yeah, twenty. Right. In but the still. same way that uh, Archigos and Bill Wang never got as high as their mark to market. And in the same way that Elon Musk was never worth several hundred billion dollars, you know, what, what something is marked, ironically, in this case, uh, yeah. is key is key to the fraud. Um, but we do think, there's no question that regulators are better archaeologists than detectives, to quote Jim Chanos' famous line. But we are starting to see a bit of a turn towards the personification of corporate crime. And what do I mean by that? I mean, beyond sort of financial crimes. There's an enormous amount of dastardly deeds done in the in the corporate sector where the executives who authorize what are blatant crimes are basically shielded from personal prosecution, both civilly and criminally. And in the piece, Unnatural uh, Immunity, we tell the story uh, of this amazing paper. If you haven't read it, we linked it in the piece. Um, let me get the name of the paper. But it's the this, this story of DuPont and Teflon.
0: And Teflon, of course, is, is the there magic- was, uh, it was called, Is Pollution Value Maximizing? Correct. The DuPont case, yeah. That's a, a stunning paper that was published uh, by
1: the National Bureau of Economic Research, which goes through how, in 1984, executives uh, at DuPont gathered in a boardroom and made a fateful decision. They knew that the compound C8, uh, which is critical for the production of, of Teflon, which is what makes your frying pans nonstick, which was a fantastic product for DuPont. They made a lot of money and, the, and 3M was providing this compound C8. They knew by 1984 that it was toxic, that it bioaccumulated, that it didn't degrade, that it accumulated in people's blood. And most importantly, it could pass from a, you know, a pregnant woman to their baby uh, through the umbilical cord and lead to birth defects. And in fact, as the piece outlines, DuPont quietly pulled all women out of that factory once they realized that two of the seven babies born to women who worked in that factory had, in fact, uh, defects in the eyes and nose as the lab rat studies had indicated uh, there would be based on results that 3M had communicated to DuPont three years earlier. And yet, they did nothing. They doubled down on production and they implemented zero abatement, even though abatement was cheap because in a cold net present value calculation, the company decided that the cost of abatement when weighed against the discounted cash flows of future fines, especially when you consider that DuPont had a very strong public affairs, government affairs, and legal arm, that it wasn't worth it. And so they didn't do it. But as we point out in the piece, at no time did any of those executives even consider that they personally could be charged with a crime for what they were about to do. And we believe that's changing. And and we quoted a memo from the Department of Justice, a very underreported memo that basically reemphasizes uh, the Yates standard, where uh, the first thing that the DOJ is going to do in cases of corporate criminality is find the executives who authorized it and make it personal. And that's actually something we support, even though we're sort of free market capitalists and small government types. Like if you're going to sit around and coldly calculate how many uh, people you can destroy before you, it becomes sort of NPV positive and you have no moral compass whatsoever, then you, you should be susceptible to the loss. And, and, you know, one of the unfortunate things about our society is this convergence of big company and big government and the revolving door between the two. So if you look at the SEC, and back to your question about the Madoff documentary, the, the SEC is overwhelmed, understaffed, and everybody there is looking for their job at the White Shoe Law Firm. And those same White Shoe Law firms are representing the Bernie Madoffs. And pick your favorite uh, fraud scoundrel of the day. And as we said in the piece, you know, the, the conviction of Trevor Milton and the conviction of Elizabeth Holmes for what is pretty pedestrian fraud with respect to what's going on in Silicon Valley today. Look, fake it till you make it is essentially lie and hope it works. Yeah, yeah. And, and that goes on all the time. And if that's going to become a crime, then there's a lot of people in Silicon Valley who should be worried.
0: Well, there is. And, and you know, the documentary makes the point that um, the timing was fortuitous for many because Bernie Madoff became the face onto which people could pile all their angst about quote-unquote bankers and finance types in the wake of 2008. You know, he became the poster boy for that. And he was sentenced to 150 years in prison, which was definitely done to make a point, right? But again, you you look at the details of it, he said he did it all on his own. And essentially, apart from a couple of small sentences for, for people who were in his inner circle in the firm... There was never any any kind of broadening of that net, and so you know to see Elizabeth Holmes go down to see Trevor Milton go down is is one thing, but again, you know we've got Bankman-Fried in quote unquote custody uh, in his parents' multi-million dollar Palo Alto <laughs> home and writing a Substack and doing all these things. You know, there is it's fine to say yeah we're going to hold people accountable, but then there's there's walk in the walk and. There seems to me to be right now plenty of pretty easy ways for these guys to crack some heads and say, we're going to make examples of people. And the FTX thing to me, I keep coming back to it, if you have a supposedly a million creditors of something that there has already been acres of ink spilled about whether this thing is a security or not, and you know, these tokens are securities or not, it, it falls squarely in the FTC's crosshairs you've got a million creditors, what are you doing? Like, What are you doing? David Dore in a podcast that did recently suggested um, he believed that this whole thing had been allowed to go on because the intelligence agencies were garnering so much useful information from it, but that the FTX thing would essentially be the time where people come in and say, okay, right, you've had your phone, wind it up now because retail investors are getting hurt, we need to start protecting them. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. It's certainly plausible to me. But I still as a cynical man who's been in the finance game for the best part of 40 years now i just i remain completely unconvinced that the regulators will do anything meaningful to stop this stuff happening rather than let a whole bunch of it happen and then make a, a some kind of example of someone to say hey don't do it again so it's fascinating, lots, lots to unpack there, but I would start by saying
1: it is funny that he, Madoff was essentially the only person who went to jail in the global financial crisis, right? And, right. Um, and one of the things we point out in this piece is just how difficult it can be to prosecute somebody in the corporate crime setting. And we talked about a chief engineer of Empire Bulkers who was charged with concealing you know, deliberate pollution and failing to report hazardous conditions on board one of their bulk carrier's And even though the company pled guilty and collaborated with the prosecutors, he was acquitted at trial of all charges. And then we tell the story of of, uh, Paul Cruz, who is the former CEO of the ice cream maker Blue Bell. And his response to a product recall was deemed by prosecutors to be uh, insufficient to the task. And first set of charges were dismissed on a technicality. The second was a hung jury, 10-2 in favor of acquitting. And he's up on trial again for the third time in April. And this has been seven years, this saga. The amount of resources public resources, time, and skill needed to actually prosecute people can be overwhelming. And so um, having said all of that, though, back to Gary Gensler, I did find it very interesting that he charged both Gemini and Genesis this week with, as you mentioned, trafficking in unregistered securities essentially through their EARN program. And it's fascinating to watch the Vinkervoss twins on Twitter um, trying to get their money back out of, out of Barry Sibert and and the DCG group at the same time amazingly back to this uh, phenomenon of lack of respect for regulators and no fear of the market the, <laughs> that one of the Vinkovos twins was on Twitter decrying this charge by the SEC for trafficking on registered securities as a quote, what do they call it? A, a, uh, a parking ticket. And, uh, you know, it's just amazing to me that you would go and tweet and dunk on the SEC in the middle of being charged by them. It, it just shows you that we have an entire generation of people that have no respect at all for regulators, and maybe it's maybe that's the correct assessment because they haven't earned it. You know, right. they, an effective regulator is one who is feared. And based on what we see on Twitter, nobody's afraid of Gary Gensler.
0: No, no one's afraid of Gary Gensler, and no one's afraid of the SEC as a as a as an institution. You know, I I remember my days on Wall Street. They did seem to carry a stick. Now a lot of it was nonsense and just time consuming and a waste of time. And they certainly took on cases that were ridiculous frankly and that seemed to stem from the fact that they had far too few people working there with industry experience they had an awful lot of lawyers in there who could look at something that happened see some patterns that they thought were wrong where a 5 minute conversation with a someone who was an experienced trader would say well no it's very clear what happened here xyz but still you know you lived in fear of the SEC and the NASD because you knew that if you got embroiled in one of those things it was it was going to be an absolute nightmare for you. It's gonna go on forever. There'll be lawyers involved. But it just seems to me, and you know, we go back to Elon Musk, that stating on national TV after he'd settled with them, you know, I you know, I want to be quite clear, I I do not respect the SEC. And when you when you have people like the richest man in the world, although he wasn't at the time, publicly declaring that he has no respect for an organization that's just fined him and supposedly, you know, hauled him over the coals, what do you expect? You know, what do you expect?
1: Well funny you should mention because in that piece we do point out that there is one regulator that should be feared that has a a recent track record of cracking down pretty hard, which is the FTC. Right. And the FTC fined Facebook $5 billion. As we mentioned in the piece, they just put somebody in jail. The the former chief security officer of Uber was put in jail. Rare perp walk for an executive was put in jail for uh, obstructing justice in an FTC investigation around a data breach. And the one thing that I believe the market is potentially underestimating and certainly Elon might be underestimating is that the FTC has Twitter under a strict agreement based on some prior data breaches, a consent decree basically. And um, it looks like he's basically ignoring it or at least the people that um, were at Twitter, whose job it was to make sure that they were satisfying that uh, strict consent decree are all gone. And it looks like at least two of them are collaborating or blowing the whistle uh, and working with the FTC Uh, based on a piece that we quoted. And whatever you think of Elon's takeover of Twitter, and it certainly has been fascinating to watch, I suspect that Twitter would be unable to withstand, financially, a significant fine from the FTC at this point, given what little we know about their finances and the trouble the bankers are having offloading the massive amount of debt that was saddled onto that company in order to pay for it.
0: Yeah, I mean it. It is fascinating, but it, t- it tends to be at you know at times like this when there is stress in the markets and people are losing money. You know, this is the time when, as you say, they do need a bad guy and they need to see a bad guy punished. And like I said, it seems to me there are bad guys everywhere. And even if you just go after them hard, any convictions are going to happen years down the line, most likely. But even if you're just seen to be actually going after these guys with the full weight and force of your office, it can make a difference. Well,
1: deterrence is an important aspect of policing. And the opposite has occurred. Again, as you mentioned, when Elon goes on 60 Minutes and says, I'm not going to follow this agreement I've made and I don't respect them and I'm just going to do what I want, freedom of speech, then that that signals to the Trevor Miltons of the world and the various founders of the world and the crypto bros and, and the whole mania that we just went through. It really was, as as Chano says, the golden age of fraud and, and the spec boom, which we just wrote about this morning. And, and it's just really, either they get back control of the wheel or the car's going to go off the cliff.
0: So, that before we before we wrap up, there's one more piece of yours recently that um, I want to talk about because it's, since you wrote it, which wasn't that long ago, I think it was right after New Year's you wrote this thing and you called it uh, A Home Near You. The story you to- talked about has has become much more prominent in the news with some <laughs> remarkable things happening to it. So so I don't, I don't want to steal your thunder. So walk us through the, the premise of A Home Near You and what's happened subsequent to your publishing it, because it's, it's, it's another fascinating story.
1: Well, you know, sometimes it's better to be lucky than good, but yeah. we had a sense, you know, it was a fun piece. We sort of had it teed up near the end of the year. It was the first piece we published in the new year. It didn't really have time sensitivity to it. So you could sort of put it in the can and then enjoy your New Year's Eve and and all that stuff. And We published it at the beginning of January. And at its core, the piece is about environmental propaganda and our prediction that there would be a concerted attack on natural gas consumed in the home in 2023, that this would be the big focus of the environmental movement. And ultimately at its core, if we're going to quote unquote, as they would say, get serious about addressing climate change, it ultimately manifests itself in substantial degradations of people's standard of living. And in the U.S., Many, many people heat their homes with natural gas. They cook with natural gas. They heat their water with natural gas. And why is that? Because natural gas is clean burning. It's abundant here in the US. It's relatively affordable. And it's very good at its tasks. Um, if you're cooking with natural gas, you know how long it's going to take to heat your pan. When the furnace kicks on, your home is warm. When you turn on the, the hot water tap, warm water comes out. It just works. And... This is under assault now uh, with the passes of the Inflation Reduction Act. We predicted in that piece that the word um, heat pump, heat uh, pump sorry, yeah. heat pump would be like the big, the big word of 2023. And it wasn't but two or three days later that we started to see this seemingly coordinated avalanche of propaganda. And, and the, the most predictable one has been this attempted linkage of cooking with gas on a stove to childhood asthma. Uh, we're not going to get into the merits of the claim, but let me just explain something that I learned when I was in the corporate world. Uh, I spent a lot of time around public affairs people working in the commodity sector. You have to worry about you know, attacks from environmentalists and so on. And I, I was taught a phrase by uh, a friend who was a, a, a true sort of public affairs expert. And, and he once said to me, Doomy, me, hazard equals risk times outrage. Right. And uh, from the corporate perspective, if you can control the outrage, you can toggle up the risk. And nothing is more outrageous than puppies and babies. And so, of course, they have this flimsy scientific study from Pick Your Favorite, you know, environmental movement funding it, that tries to link in a very dubious way childhood asthma to cooking on a range with natural gas. And this is all a coordinated attempt to remove natural gas from the home. And you know what? Are you pro childhood asthma, right? I mean, how many yeah. children? How many children are you willing to accept that has asthma for your uh, selfish needs to cook on an open flame? Well, right, and, and if
0: you're cooking puppies, it's even worse.
1: Oh, exactly. You know, and and so it. This is totally predictable. It's been kind of fun to play it out on Twitter, but um, we <laughs> we got pretty. <laughs> we've stitched ourselves to this. So now that when everybody sees a crazy headline like um, how you won't be able to affect climate change as long as you're burning natural gas in your home and you need to get a heat pump. And, and you know, you should see the deluge of emails we got from people who have oh, heat sure. pumps who, who hate them <laughs> and how yeah. ineffective they are. But beyond that, you're just tying yourself to a grid that's already unstable. So the whole point is electrify everything, but produce no incremental electricity and oppose all transmission projects. Like where does this end? It ends with a bunch of people shivering in the cold. And so it's been kind of a fun piece We've had a lot of good response to it. It kind of went viral for us, which was amazing. And sometimes you write a piece and you think it's going to do great and it doesn't. And sometimes you write a piece and you think, well, I'm really proud of that piece, but it's probably a little narrow and people won't like it. But they really love that piece. And what we did in that piece, of course, is we said, we're going to swim with the current and predict who's going to make the big money. And of course, private equity is all over this move. And as we said in the piece, HVAC companies are being rolled up left and right. They're selling for 17 to 22 times enterprise value to EBITDA. Get ready to pay a lot more to have your air conditioning unit served. And then of course, refrigerant. So the whole value chain is just going to ride this Inflation Reduction Act wave and make a lot of money. Last thing I'll say is, is we did point out that furnace repair technicians are in for a good ride. And if you're a youngster listening to this and you're debating going to an expensive liberal arts college or getting into that trade, we recommend getting into that trade. The analogy that we used was you'll be as popular as mechanics in Cuba after the sanctions who knew how to wrench on American cars because they're going to be A whole lot of people trying to keep old furnaces alive. The very definition of what it means to, quote, repair a furnace versus replace one is set to change. And you're going to have a wave uh, of people keeping alive furnaces long past their use-by date uh, for the decades to come. And California has already banned the replacement of furnaces after 2030. Not just you can't build a new home with a furnace. If you have an existing furnace and it breaks, you have to replace it with a heat pump. And so this is where they're going is very clear, it was fun to get ahead of it, and it was a fun piece to write.
0: But let's just kick this around for a moment longer if you have the time, because um, we've had these conversations, you and I, about policy and about some of the ridiculous things that are being done in the name of um, whatever you want to call it, whatever cause you want to call it. But the policy making has just been abject in so many cases, and, and none more so than nuclear. We've had this conversation, not just you and I together, but we've had it with Chris Kiefer, what does it take, do you think, for common sense to prevail? Because we, we saw green shoots of common sense when fuel prices were so high, when, when uh, Putin invaded Ukraine, we started to see people being forced into making pragmatic decisions made, driven by common sense. But as, as prices have come down, those seem to have disappeared. Is it as simple as put them in a big enough problem and they will have to be pragmatic and make more sensible policy? Or... Can we just accept that to lapse once conditions become more benign again?
1: It's it's funny you should ask that because as pleased as we are that Europe has been blessed with an unusually warm weather, which has circumvented many of the tail risk yeah. events and taken them off the board. One of our fears, and we wrote a piece called "The Whims of Gaia," which you know, as we said, you know, um, allocating your energy policy to the whims of the weather is always a bad idea, even when it works. And, and it looks like it's working in Europe, and, and thankfully for our friends and, and subscribers in Europe, but one of our fears is that policymakers will take all the wrong lessons from this. Exactly. As you, as you know, expected value is probability times consequence. And just because you rolled the dice and got lucky, and you avoided a significantly negative consequence, doesn't mean you should double down and do it again, because now you feel as though it's not going to matter. And we still have some winter to go, knock on wood that it stays warm and that Europe gets through, but if they learn all the wrong lessons, continue dismantling the nuclear power plants, continue this headlong rush into intermittent power to replace it, there's going to come a time where they roll the dice and it comes up snake eyes. And then people will be wondering who to blame. There'll be a, an epic uh, blamestorming game that will follow. And so to your question, it's this amazing sort of dilemma. You can't really affect political change until there's enough political pain to force it. But nobody would wish the amount of political pain that is needed to force such change on, any, on anybody, and certainly not us. And so you would hope that a near miss would cause you to do sort of a, a root cause analysis and maybe change your ways. But we suspect that because the near miss was more miss than near, they will take the exact opposite conclusions from this event. And they will keep pushing us down this road until the pain is actually met. It, it seems as though realized pain is unavoidable before change is forced. No amount of logic, debate, discourse, science is going to change policymakers' minds. And, you know, this fundamental dilemma that heat pumps represent, which is environmentalists demand less people living at a lower standard of living. But we live broadly in democracies and those are wildly unpopular policies. <laughs> and so they always have to backdoor their way to lie, to fudge the numbers, to shame. And heat pumps is just the next manifestation of that. I can assure you that if uh, the Biden administration outlawed natural gas furnaces, they would lose the next election. <laughs> and so it's always this way. It's kind of interesting to watch. It's great fodder for Doonberg. We'll never run out of things to write about, but it is uh, it is still pretty. I, I, I don't think that they're suddenly going to wake up with an abundance of wisdom anytime soon.
0: Well, mate, listen, from real estate pooling to the Winklevire Twins to HVAC pumps, we've covered all sorts of things in this last hour. And as always, it's We had Teflon.
1: We had Teflon. We had
0: Teflon. Yeah, but we just couldn't make that stick. Bernie Madoff. Bernie Madoff. (laughs) Bernie Madoff, yeah. And the SEC and Gensler. And there's always so much to talk about. And um, I'm so grateful for you to take the time to have another one of these conversations with me because... uh, you know, I don't think you and I are ever going to solve the problems of the world with these conversations, but it's just fascinating to put some of these things on people's radars. And you guys at Doomburg do such a fantastic job of putting these things on people's radars, things that you really have to look for them to find these stories. But it's amazing how many of them move from, you know, page 17 in the C section to the front page within a month or so of you putting these things together. So kudos to, to all of you over there.
1: Yes, thanks, Grant. And, you know, when you find what you're meant to be doing in life, just keep doing it. And that's the motto of the Dumber team. This is what we were meant to be doing. It's always a blast to talk to you and and to your subscribers. And, um, you know, I think because we talked about so many topics today, that's just proof that we don't talk enough and that we yeah. should do this more often. So, exactly but, right. uh, always fun to do. And um, you're looking great this early... In the new year, we'll go We'll go with that characterization. And um, thanks a lot for having me on, and, and it was a blast. All
0: right, buddy. It's good to talk to you. So uh, just before you disappear, back uh, to plume your feathers, let everybody know who doesn't already subscribe to you, which would be a huge mistake for them, uh, how they can learn out more about what uh, what you guys at Doomberg are doing. Yeah, where. Uh,
1: everything we publish is on Doomberg.substack.com, which is the work of our lives and a thrill to do. And uh, it's been really, truly amazing for us to to build this business and, and to enjoy doing what we love and to have the response that we've had, we're 100% subscriber supported like you. And so we, we like you, accept no advertising and, and no sponsorships, which means like you, we can be completely provocative and ha- enjoy full editorial freedom. And, and both of us, I think, uh, take full advantage of that blessing. And without the support of our subscribers and without the support of your subscribers, uh, none of this would be possible. And so I mostly just wanna express my gratitude as we begin 2023, To the listeners of this podcast and to everybody who pays for either of our content, Uh, you truly do uh, support some people who are pursuing their life's passion and and we're deeply, deeply grateful uh, for every single one of them.
0: Amen. Couldn't have put that better myself. My friend, it's always good to speak to you. And uh, yeah, you're right. Let's do it again soon.
1: All right. Talk to you soon.
0: Take care. Bye-bye.